0: Hello and Happy New Year. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast, the first episode of 2024. I'm Thomas Jones and today I'm talking to James Meek, novelist, journalist and a contributing editor at the LRB. He has a piece in the latest issue of the paper on the new TV or the old new TV. It's a review of Pandora's Box, The Greed, Lust and Lies That Broke Television by Peter Biskin, which covers, as James puts it, the time some perhaps premature nostalgists are already calling the golden age of television from the debuts of Oz, Sex in the City and The Sopranos in the 1990s to the recently finished Succession. Hello, James, and thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. So there's a story here about money, about the way TV is funded and the way that's changed over the decades. And there's also a story about technology and the way that's changed. And then there's a third story about the TV shows themselves. Of course, those three stories are interrelated or intricately interwoven, as is sometimes said of the plots of TV drama. Um, and it's perhaps hard to remember now what TV was like 30 years ago.
1: Well, it is a bit a bit strange to be uh, talking here in London, and you and I grew up in in a British TV environment uh, about the American TV environment of the uh, of the 80s. Uh, i suppose that's where where this story begins but we were very much influenced by it in, in our um well of course you're somewhat younger than me but in the in the the limited channel world of the british tv in the 80s of course we were subject to subjected um or uh privileged to watch an enormous amount of of american tv of varying quality and uh the way that the system worked in the nineteen eighties was that it was in America was that it was very much dominated by by the networks, the broadcast networks, what you can pick up with an aerial, uh, to put it crudely, and uh, the the three networks were ABC, CBS, and and NBC, and and they were the shows. They were the ones who who produced the shows, put out the shows, uh, and they were broadcast in a particular way. They were funded in a particular way. They were funded by ads they were broadcast with these um, very brutal ad breaks which just hit directly without any uh, break from, uh, from the show to the, to the ads and back. Uh, and, and that was what people were used to. That was, where the, that was how the shows came. But what it meant was that the advertisers had an enormous amount of control over what the networks showed. Or at least this was the ostensible reason for the very heavy censorship that hung over these these shows they there was no nudity permitted that was that was enforced to an almost obsessive degree uh, no swear words uh, language was generally sanitized people's behavior was uh, the behavior of the characters in in drama was uh, very rigidly controlled bad people were bad people good people were good people there was very little development of character from episode to episode of uh, of a series of course there were exceptions to all these but this was the rule the general rule was was lowest common denominator programming we don't want to upset anyone uh, the risk is too great uh, and if we did then the advertisers would say well uh, that may play well in uh, in manhattan but it's it's not going to play well in in rural uh, Iowa so they wouldn't do it and the the networks had these departments called uh, broadcast standards and practices which would take the the scripts and say well you can't say that you can't do this there would be constant arguments but also there was another culture perhaps related to this perhaps related to the fact that these huge companies simply had so much power it was this, this kind of small oligopoly that layers of executives would have influence over the final shape of a show. And you'd have one layer, two layers, three layers, and they would all be able to say, well, no, this doesn't work, we can't do this. Get the writers to change it, get another writer, sack those writers, put more writers in, or hand it over to our rewrite guy, he'll rewrite it. and uh, i mean this is this is familiar to to all kinds of scripted entertainment where you have a large group of people cooperating whether it's whether it's theatrical drama or uh, or the movies or um, or television you know it's this is not an alien concept but it was taken to an absurdly high degree in american network tv of the 80s and early 90s uh, to the extent that tv had become extremely bland and then this was what the just call it a new technology is is wrong, because there was nothing very sophisticated about it. The idea of cable TV is pretty straightforward. And and it was particularly applicable to the United States, which is a, a huge landmass. And there are all sorts of reasons why it's not always possible or practical to get a good TV signal over the air to a community. So cable TV became a thing, yeah, simply hooking uh, TVs, households up directly to a central distribution system along a wire instead of uh, through the airwaves. Uh, And so the cable companies were gradually pushing their service and they said, well, look, if you sign up for us, then you'll get not just the free-to-air network channels, uh, but you will also get um, all these extra channels, uh, which will show you full uncut movies. And sports events and special one-off events like, uh, like comedy shows. Uh, so more and more people began to sign up to, to cable. And by the, the mid-80s, more than half of uh, United States households had cable. So this was uh, the stage was set for uh, the new companies to, or rather established cable companies, to, to start making original programming.
0: And I mean there's an, an analogy here which you make in the piece and which is you know is present in Peter Biskin's work, that his one of his previous books was about the new Hollywood of the nineteen seventies and the way that, that, you know, the demise of the studio system and all the rest of it. And so there seems to be an analogous story between what happened to the movies then and what happened to TV twenty years later. Or is that slightly forced?
1: Well, that's an interesting point because uh, yes, there is an analogy in the sense that that the movies had become sort of uh, dull and and bloated uh, and anodyne in the uh, late 60s um, or at least that's biskins argument but what was interesting about it is that you couldn't say this was because of advertisers and it was almost as if actually this whole point about um advertising is is a bit of a um of a red herring and, and perhaps there was a kind of inevitable arc of showbiz bureaucracy that uh, when there's a lot of money involved, a lot of money at stake, there is a tendency by the creative people to try and always push the boundaries and to do more exciting and interesting things while also making themselves money. Uh, but on the other hand, there is a tendency of a, a particular class or a sort of phenotype of um, of executive, who will always want to say, okay, you did that exciting thing that everyone loved. Uh, Keep on doing it. Do it again. Do it over and over again. In fact, you did it, so now we know the formula and we'll we'll do the same thing. That worked. Let's keep on doing that. Then um, you can still call yourselves creatives, even though you're still doing basically the same thing over and over again, Uh, and we can make lots of money and you can make lots of money and everyone will be happy. And, of course, the problem with that is that excitement rapidly wanes in inverse proportion to uh, the novelty and uh, without a, an injection of genuinely new and fresh stuff it's it's like the difference between the the inventor and the and the farmer uh, the inventor says, "Well, here's a new thing. It does a, a new thing in a new way, and it's amazing." And the farmer says, "Well, you know, look, here's some fresh, here's some fresh beans. They're just like last year's beans, but they're absolutely fresh. So you'll you'll enjoy them for their freshness." And the sort of the farming approach seems to be the way that a certain kind of uh, mindset of executive will always bring to to the creative. Horrible word, creative industries, uh, and the the inventive approach is is something that is people are always trying to push in from the outside, but struggles to get in. And maybe it sometimes takes uh, a, a technological leap, but in the case of the, the new Hollywood, it was more just that people were bored, the uh, the artists were bored, the uh, the audiences were bored, and the impetus may have been the influence of the French cinema of of that era uh, which american directors some american directors got very excited about so that was that was the case in um, in hollywood uh, and uh, i guess that with tv it was a combination of all these factors uh, there was one more thing with television that led to initially the rise of what used to be called home box office hbo as as the first channel to establish itself as a the creator of of interesting edgy exciting tv and that was the fact that that these extra channels like hbo that the cable company said you get this if you sign up to the cable they you know that one of their main selling points was well you can watch movies that have just been uh, released in cinemas on on tv through cable but that became no longer a reliable uh, marketing tool, uh, income stream for them because uh, the uh, VHS and DVDs came along. So instead of watching stuff on cable, uh, having to wait till it came on cable because I don't want to go to the cinema. I'm like a cinema guy. I'll, I'll watch it on TV. Uh, people just bought DVDs or the things they liked or VHSs. And, and so the uh, premium cable, as it was called, like HBO and Showtime they had to come up with some other way of of getting subscribers, and uh, they thought, well, we're going to have to make original programming, so that's what they did.
0: And they were able to have swearing and nudity and more extreme violence, or not more extreme violence. Yes, I and mean, you can show quite. They, a lot. I mean, that's one of the odd things about the sanitized TV. You could show people.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Also. They, I, I think they. I mean, this is not something that Biskin really goes into in great detail, but it's certainly noticeable that the the new TV loves its gore, or a particular branch of it uh, loves its gore. Uh, one thinks of, of of Game of Thrones, which uh, seems to require that in every episode um, a a limb should be lovingly amputated, or or a throat should be gushingly cut and uh, so yeah th- that was that there was the there was the swearing there was the the nudity and explicit reasonably explicit sex and um which which as we'll talk about later sort of went off in 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 different directions but i think over and above that pos- those possibilities there was a feeling that in all senses we've just got to be the anti network if if the network does it one way we're going to do it another way if they have uh, departments set up to police what writers act and what, what, what writers do and say uh, and the characters do and say on screen, we're going to to not have that, we're going to be permissive and people are going to say, oh yeah we don't want network TV, we want this so uh, that's that was the, the early attitude of HBO and it is interesting I mean it's not something that, that Biskind makes explicit but one of the ideas uh, that they had in, in the business in the 80s was that cable was a guy thing and network TV was a, was a woman thing. And I, who knows where this, this piece of bullshit came from, but um, there it was. And so one of, one of the mainstreams of, of early cable was boxing, the big fight. And uh, sort of edgy man comedy, stand-up comedy by by male comedians, with more uh, swearing and more sex talk than you would be able to have on uh, on network TV. And sometimes when you're watching a not so good modern TV show, where you feel the jaded senses of the viewers are, are being prodded into into interest by a, a random. Flash of nudity, or or a or a big fight scene, you feel yeah. Well, it, that's still going on. This sort of soft porn documentaries that they would sometimes show on the on the original premium cable TV channels, or the the big fight is now has been folded in to to Game of Thrones, for example, uh, to to try and keep the interest of the of the exhausted, dulled uh, workers who had slumped in front of the in front of their screen.
0: <sighs> But I mean, you could say that is also true of the, for want of a better word, the better shows or the more highly esteemed shows. That even you know, The Sopranos, or which, in its exploration of the damaged psyche of a of a middle aged man, again, as perhaps could be said to be, you know, having that idea of a certain kind of male audience. in, in mind, it's
1: what you do with it. Yeah, and I, I don't think I'm not embarrassed to say that The Sopranos is a better show. It's it's one of the good ones. And uh, we in in life, uh, and and I suppose there's a sort of there's a premise here that that realism is what we're aiming for, which is not necessarily uh, a valid premise, but let's go with that. In life, there are nasty moments. Uh, there are, there is violence, uh, and when violence happens, it often is uh, messy and chaotic, uh, rather than. Um, as in the the world of the old networks, a a, a brave blonde policeman firing a little handgun uh, and a bullet uh, fells the villain, and they they die without a without a drop of blood. It's also a a world of of complicated and messy sex and sexual uh, ramifications, shall we say and and then there are, there is the, the way that people actually talk they they talk in in confused hesitations and uh 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 ing all the time and uh, and, and, and and swearing and fill the gaps
0: with yeah fill the Expletive, gaps with swear words yeah. yes
1: uh, and if you can do that all those things in a way that is natural and genuine and most importantly it it works with the story and the characters that you have created rather than seeming as it does in the bad shows to be a sort of circus of uh, excitement uh, in order to grab your reader's attention, then I think you're, you're doing well. You're using the new possibilities uh, to, to their full and, and effectively. Uh, I mean, I mean it's yes, of course that, we, we yeah. can talk about the, the Sopranos um, and, and other great shows like like succession but there are there are a lot and even now this is why i, th- I think it's uh, to say that oh the golden age of television is over and and there are no good shows anymore it's it is a bit premature because a, a couple of of the shows that that i've watched recently uh, in the past few years uh, have been have been very powerful and and do use these carefully uh, chosen moments of of, of violence and extremity, as carefully chosen as you would choose anything that you did, uh, whether it's a scene uh, or a um, or, or, or a, a character's uh, meditative moment, they, they've used them well. And I'm thinking of, of uh, White Lotus, the White Lotus, for example, that series set in a in a series of, of luxury hotels, um, or Beef set in amongst the um, the Asians of uh, of California. These these shows carry through
0: um but of course it costs a lot of money to make tv that looks
1: that good it does and and you've had this um this steadily increasing cost inflation that when they were um when hbo was hesitating about whether to commission the sopranos they were, they waited 10 months to get back to david chase uh to say we're going to we're going to make this um and and he to the extent that he was Talking to the X Files about, about writing for them, and he thought well, this isn't going to happen, uh, but then it did happen. But the, one of the reasons they waited for so long was just, just the cost. They thought two and a half million dollars for an episode. Uh, nobody's ever spent that kind of money on drama before. That's that's insane. Uh, fast forward to uh, now and the latest episode of Stranger Things, I think is coming in at um, is it 30 million dollars an episode? Uh, you know, Europe. Getting to the point where a single episode of a, a show that a network has sort of or, or um, a channel has has uh, based its future on is, is going to cost as much as a as a major film, so that's happening. Uh, and in order to bear these costs, I mean, it's in a way these costs are not bearable, uh, and that's why. Uh, yeah, I mean, you have two things going on. One is that there is a lot of money in play overall, and that has drawn in. Lots of new players, but at the same time, if all these new players are spending this level of of money to try and make this kind of television, then it's not sustainable. Uh, levels of debt are too high. Uh, there is too much television. Uh, people's eyes are bleeding already from a uh, mass attack of entertainment. So something's got to give. So that's that's the pressure that has both driven up the prices, but also caused this extraordinary wave of, on the one hand, consolidation, on the other hand, uh, bringing in these, these new players um, like Netflix, uh, Apple Plus. Um, Apple has now joined the fray, Amazon, and at the same time causes this wave of mergers and consolidations uh, and at the same time have caused this scramble to try and buy any intellectual property which already has a fan base which already has shown itself to be popular in some other sphere.
0: But how much money do they I mean there is a problem with the even though it's getting more expensive to subscribe to all these channels and all streaming services and if you if you were to s- sign up to Netflix and Apple and Amazon and Disney and Paramount Plus mm. you'd be spending <laughs> an astonishing yes. and, um, amount of money on watching TV. I mean,
1: I, I hate to say it, but uh, you have to add the license fee onto that if you, if you happen to be watching TV in Britain. Um, I did actually do, do a sum um, for a British person if they wanted to subscribe to everything. I, I think it was, it was certainly in excess of £100 a month. Um, and I think it's important to. We, I've, I've been seeing or talking about all this through the prism of drama. But it's um, important to, which I suppose kind of comes under the larger heading of of uh, entertainment. But it's important to remember that there are the two other big planks of, uh, I suppose, let's say, TV. There's current affairs, and there's sport, and um, I think particularly sport is is a big part of this. And you've seen in the relationship between the American. TV business and the obviously much smaller British TV business, you've seen this kind of quiet merging of these two worlds, uh, of which I think the uh, almost now 50% takeover by different American companies of English football Premier League teams um, is, is a part. So, you know, the, the, when uh, Murdoch sold off Sky. Um, It was Comcast, the big American cable TV company that uh, took over Sky TV channels plus uh, Now TV. So you've got this um, and and we are subscribing now directly to all these American uh, companies. You know, we're not we're not watching American TV necessarily because the BBC or ITV bought it, as would have happened in the past. We're going straight to the coffers of Netflix and Amazon and Apple. Um, we're paying our, our fees now. Uh, the, the kind of TV watching peasants are now paying their their um, feudal duties to the the lords of the of the manor in um, in California these days. So, and along with all this, along with all this, just to finish, um, we have the third strand, the current affairs strand, which is kind of limping along in in the wake of of the entertainment and sport and it's very striking now i i hadn't realized until i i started reading up on this to write this article how much of a of a new oligopoly you have now in the united states and it's a complex one and you might say well you can't talk about an oligopoly because you have old media and then you know as as you had in succession you have old media and legacy media and you have the new new tech the tech bros um with their entertainment product um, but still it it is striking that the uh entertainment and the and the news uh channels in the states are now all kind of nested in the same in the same corporations NBC ABC CBS you know they're all linked up with um with movie studios or um with big entertainment corporations, uh, and and you can say, well, they always were, but it's 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 a much um, it's a much t- tighter organization now, um, and now it's much more it's much more global as well.
0: I mean, it's interesting that you an interesting Freudian slip, perhaps earlier that you talked about uh, readers rather than viewers, and there is <laughs> and the idea and and I mean different. Words are used for different genres of TV and of novels, but I mean, you could say that the shows that you prefer are drawn to and often get more highly praised could be described as perhaps the equivalent of what, for want of a better word, is known as literary fiction, which I guess something like Succession or White Lotus would would fall under. And you know that Game of Thrones is is fantasy, and that a lot of TV has well, they're crime thrillers. They're variants you know, of the of the of the cop show, you know. And of course, The Wire, which you also talk about, which is a cop show, but it's uh, it doesn't really follow any of the rules of cop shows. I mean, I quite like the ones which are still genre shows and are still, in a sense, trapped by that. I mean, you mentioned The Shield, which you don't like, but I I did think it was really good. And one of the things that that I liked about it is the way that it um. You know, it kind of, it is, it has these constraints. I mean, they're not not quite like the Ulipo, but it does. It's a cop show, so you have the crime of the week that needs to be solved and you have the antagonist of the season and you have the, and so it it is still a crime show in a way that is almost recognisable from those 80s crime shows of the networks, but the way that it's sort of pushes against and is constrained by those genre constraints makes it interesting to me.
1: Of course, you know you you have a point um about about the constraints of of a genre, but I think also you were talking about literary fiction and it's interesting again this is not something that biskin really makes um very explicit, but it's interesting to look at what happened with with Hollywood and um the way that these films that we now consider to be classics uh, from the 1970s, uh, and when I say classics, I mean not simply that. The three things happened: a lot of people watched them; they were blockbusters; people queued to see them; all kinds of people. Another thing was that the critics thought they were they were really great, but also uh, now there's a sort of a third stage of adulation and pantheon uh, adding to, which is that academics will, will talk about them uh, in universities. Uh, they've got that sort of seal of, of approval. And you had all this, the popularity plus critical success plus academic success in one film or in one set of films. And I think that's what, that's what Biskin yearns for, um, his idea of a great... Work of screen art is one that is not only good in the in the judgment of the the critical academic complex, uh, but also that the punters love it too. And he feels that that is what we have we have lost. Uh, and it's with Hollywood you have uh, this divergence in the in the seventies there were movies, but now there are art house movies and there are um there are blockbusters uh, the star wars franchise the marvel franchise and so on uh and they be- it seems they're becoming more heterogeneous and uh you could say that the, the way that the, this sort of part of filmmaking shifted away into a new realm of uh so-called art house films is a parallel to the idea that there is fiction and there is literary fiction and it hasn't quite been articulated in a terminology in television uh, and perhaps that's because it hasn't yet happened because even in the the shows that there isn't is, is there a TV show which is explicitly setting itself up. Um, I think that there's a phrase in in the book that somebody, some critic used uh that it says something like, uh AMC mentioning AMC, another um cable channel, AMC shows come pre approved by the Manhattan elite. Uh is there a is there a kind of show that is, is specifically aimed at um pointy headed people who like to read literary fiction and who go to art house films, uh, but with no would never watch. Um, would never go and watch Black Panther. I'm not sure that's quite happened yet. So somebody could probably point an example to me. So, The Sopranos. It was popular, and it was popular with with a lot of people. Uh, succession. That's that's an open question. I don't know. I haven't looked at the uh, the audience research. Um, you know who who watches who watches Succession. Uh, is that a show which did explicitly appeal to a, a demographic? The kind of demographic that that does read literary fiction and does watch aren't house films, or did it have cross demographic appeal? So I think you know, even if you with both most of the of the early shows in in what I'm um, boldly calling the new television, I think there was always an entertainment a, an entertainment imperative. It was all very well to be extremely clever and profound and interesting and subtle, but in the end, you wanted lots and lots of people to watch it. Lots and lots of people of all kinds. And the shows like like The Wire and and Breaking Bad, I mean, Breaking Bad. It, it's hardly a, a a gentle and subtle meditation on the problems of of drug abuse. There's a lot of killing in it, and it has these sort of memeable moments of violence. There's, uh, I, I think, Breaking Bad is is brilliant, and I think it's uh, it says some profound things about the way people are. It it has that, it it takes that chance and it uses it very well. But at the same time, it has a scene where a a man is blown up on his feet and the camera pans around. So first of all, you see the side of his body that is not blown up and you think, oh, he's still alive. And then the camera pans around and and you see that the entire other half of his body is, is flayed off, including the skull. A scene which obviously took an enormous amount of um, patience and effort to to set up. Um, And here I am talking about it. I remember it. And and that's the kind of sort of wow, did you see that moment Uh, that could have been in in a Marvel film that uh, that, that the kids would excitedly discuss in the playground the next day? They would have been allowed to see it.
0: But, I mean, as you say in the piece, that often the best scenes in the new TV, as with the old TV, or when it's just a question of pointing the camera at two actors in a studio talking to each other. I mean, you mentioned the moment in *The Wire* when Avon Barksdale and Stringer Bell are together and they're reminiscing about their childhood and the history of their friendship, and they're just about to, or they already have, sold each other out. And that, and I, you know, I know you don't like *Game of Thrones*, but actually, it does have its moments like that too, and they are much the best moments of it, and they are the things that actually make it good drama when it is good drama.
1: Yes, I actually, when I mentioned that scene in The Wire, which I'd watched um, whenever it came out, 20 years ago, whenever it was, I then doubted that I got it right. So I went back and watched the whole whole episode again. And that was interesting. Um, It was pretty much, as I remembered it, one of the most disconcerting things about it. uh, And this is another feature of, I suppose this is nothing new about television, but one of the the characters in The Wire. He's a, a local politician. Uh, I recognised him because I'd, I'd just seen him as Lord Baelish in, uh, in Game of Thrones uh, with an English accent instead of an American one. So that was quite confusing and disconcerting. Uh, but the actual scene itself, it was still powerful. I didn't realise how much it depended for its power, though, on one having seen these characters over um, the many hours that you had followed them previously that that's part of what gave it its its intensity but it was it was a quiet scene it was on the balcony of um i guess it was stringer bell's apartment uh, and these two drug gang leaders, um, both of whom had sort of made it uh, to a new level of of power and wealth and sophistication and they they both stood at the brink of of a new and better and richer life of success. And yet they both knew that the one was plotting to kill the other. And it was handled very, very delicately, very gently and very believably. And uh, it it, it did seem something of the... uh, of the Greek tragedy about it that this was just uh, this was doomed, this was inevitable the the gods had made their had made their call, and there was nothing that could be done to stop it. That moment was rather better than the than the actual death scene which which followed uh, but it uh, yeah, it still has power after all these years
0: yeah yeah, although actually the moment when when the stringer bell He's been he's been cornered by the hitmen and he you know turns to them and says get on with them motherfuckers and gets guns down in the middle of saying that is, um, is also a very good moment and all the better for coming after the and of course, and, I, and Avon is arrested rather than killed isn't he it's a different kind of betrayal and what that says about the way they they've set each other up um, and, and anyway. yes, as <laughs> you
1: going back to what you were saying earlier um, yeah it it is um, it is a cop show and um, and you could almost say that the sopranos is a is a sort of cop stroke mafia show of a kind There's, there is a a sort of a certain um, set of of tropes of 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 the made men and the um, and the loyalty within the group that's um, that 's established uh, even before the sopranos was was first aired there are a few few series just come along completely um without precursors uh, and a framework uh and, and and that's that's probably because writers need some kind of containment to hang their stories on
0: i mean there's also i mean a way i mean perhaps this is pushing it slightly but you can see that one of the precursors of tony soprano is j r Ewing, right <laughs> the, the kind of yeah. <laughs> the the, the, pa- the pa- <laughs> you know the villainous the villainous patriarch and the And all the rest of it that there is a i mean there is a a line perhaps a thin line but from from dallas to the Sopranos. i mean and and as you say in the piece and perhaps it's the exception that proves the rule although it's always possible to think of other ones um there's that twin peaks that was made in 1990 well broadcast in 1990 it was a network show it had ads and all the rest of it and yet it's unlike almost anything and and right, it has a it has a murder and it, it has a policeman, but it's not a cop show. And it it has soapy elements, but it's not a soap opera. And it really, I mean, if it really is its own thing, and that was made as network TV,
1: it was. And 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 I've never seen anything like it. The um, the element of the surreal has just never really been there. There have been surrealism and surreal moments in. And a lot of um, of the new TV, including the the dream sequences in in The Sopranos, but I've never seen anything like the sort of the stylized narrative surrealism or or the entrance of the surreal into the the dialogue and performance of the characters in the real world. Never really challenged or explained, which you see in uh, in Twin Peaks. Uh, you know, as as I'm describing it, if this show had ever been made, you think well that, that wouldn't work. And yet and yet for me it does. And and it, it shows that how you can um it, it, it hints at the possibility that any medium because you talk about constraints, but of course the the network world was a meta constraint. There's a very interesting interview with David Milch, who is one of the first writer showrunners to uh, make a go of, uh, to actually use the, the possibilities of the new medium, uh, the new TV, uh, cable TV, to make uh, a successful show with lots of bare breasts and, and swearing and, and uh, killing, uh, graphic killing. He, he made Deadwood. Uh, he was the writer and showrunner of Deadwood. Uh, the this this show set in a small, completely anarchic, lawless, literally lawless gold mining town on Indian territory in the 19th century. And uh, as far as Peter Biskins concerned, you know, this is one of the masterpieces of, um, of, early, of the early new TV. Uh, I, I wasn't so crazy about it, but uh, I can see why it must have made a shock made made an impact at the time because it was so it must have been so different because every minute there's something oh you can't do this on TV surely but they were doing it. But what was interesting was there's an interview with Milch uh, when he's talking about Deadwood and he's talking about the cowboy in the Western and how in reality the real cowboys were the real men of the West were swearing as as just part of the warp and weft of their of their speech you know, fuck this fuck that but the western the cowboy as he appeared in the movies was um in the sort of the mainstream movies of the of the 50s and 60s he was this laconic individual who his the real cowboy's uh, swearing was uh, subsumed in his fact that he was too cool to swear he didn't speak much at all he was he was quiet and laconic he only said a few words so milch's idea was that they they created this archetype of the of the laconic terse cowboy uh, as a sort of counterweight to to the real cowboy who was swearing all the time but my point my thought was when i heard this was, well why didn't you try that in deadwood instead of having these people who these characters who after a after about 15 minutes, you think they actually sound like children who um, are excited about the possibility of swearing for the first time. Uh, instead of that, maybe you could try toning it down um, just as a challenge to see whether some of the more interesting things they might have to say um, that that are not kind of colourful ways of, of talking about asses and and... And sex. Uh, So, uh, you know, he didn't really follow his 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 own thought to its logical conclusion. And so, you know, a a film that that could be made both under the constraints of genre and under the constraints of of censorship, which is after all how uh, many great artists have worked, might be something really might be something really special
0: yeah and Twin Peaks was one of those shows, it although was. it did I mean it did get very bad for a while yeah, after
1: i mean the you know, the, ne- <laughs> the, the network Lynch. made
0: david David Lynch because of the network I mean they said the network said, look we have to you have to reveal who killed Laura Palmer, which David Lynch and Mark Frost had never wanted to do, but they gave in, they revealed who killed Laura Palmer, and then at that point David Lynch lost all interest in Twin Peaks and went off to make wild at heart and then he came back for the finale, but those there are about 15, 15 episodes, which are really not good at yeah, all, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's a network show. I mean, I um, I, I would yeah. also
1: say that one of the the feelings you have both in reading Peter Biskin's earlier work about Hollywood and um, reading the new book is God, uh, these um, these TV and uh, Hollywood executives—they just fire each other all the time. It's just endless firings, uh, and. There's a lot of quite cold nastiness going on uh, amongst the suits, uh, and that world. Because I, I, after a while, you start thinking, "Well, that would make a great show—a show about a network show." Um, and David Lynch, uh, David Lynch, kind of did that as well. You know, he he did the best showbiz Hollywood film in, in *Mulholland Drive*. Uh, I've I've never seen a a better one. Again, using um, surrealism and realism together.
0: And got, I mean, the other thing which we haven't or we've touched on, but this idea that TV is a writer's medium where movies are a director's medium and the, the role of the showrunner, who's also known as the creator. And if you're known as the creator, it could probably give you delusions of grandeur and omnipotence. And And I suppose that as with the idea of the auteur in Hollywood, there is this idea that the creator of the show is somehow responsible for everything. And they can often get this idea in their heads and some of them can then behave very unpleasantly to the many people who work for them. But at the same time, you can exaggerate the importance of the role of the the creator or the showrunner because they are not doing it entirely by themselves by any means at all. And I mean, there's an argument that Tony Soprano owes at least as much to James Gandolfini as he does to David Chase, that David Chase wrote him, but it was Gandolfini who who brought him to life as it were.
1: Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth in that, that, that Tony Soprano does owe as much, if not more to James Gandolfini's performance as it does to, to the writing. Um, but there's another element, which is more difficult to sort of talk about, but very interesting, which is an exceptional and a vital skill, perhaps the most vital skill, the casting, because had they not chosen James Gandolfini, imagine if it had been someone else, another actor, um, it would it have would it have worked? Perhaps not. And and so that that element of casting that that thing that just happens once uh, and is so sort of ephemeral and so fateful, uh, I think is is absolutely vital. I think if if you in in a, a medium where there are so many different things that all have to go right for for there to be success, I think that one sometimes gets gets overlooked. But yes, I mean. There is uh, this this kind of dark transformation that occurs, potentially corrupting power, uh, that one particular writer, the writer who came up with the idea of the show, uh, usually is given uh, of being the, the showrunner, as it's called. I mean, uh, it, it is interesting reading about uh, David Chase um, because Biskin does talk quite a lot about him. I mean, he talks about others as well. He talks about... Uh, Matt Diener's uh, fall from grace at Mad Men um, over allegations of improper behavior, um, and nothing like that happened to to David Chase. But he was an unusual figure in the sense that he was um, he was much older when he finally got his chance to to make the show that he he wanted to make uh, to get away from the networks which he despised. He'd been writing in network TV for a long time. Um, he was in his fifties when, when he started um, working on on The Sopranos, and uh, and I, you know, different people that P- Biskin, Biskin has talked to Chase, uh, but he's also talked to other writers on the show, uh, and they have they have different memories of him. Uh, huge admiration from everyone, but also sort of a certain fear because he was so quick on the trigger in terms of of firing people, and he was clearly tormented by the pressure of having had a successful show previously he was tormented by the pressure of not having a successful show but what could be even worse than having not having a successful show having a successful show and making it successful week after week uh and this really uh, almost destroyed him and and in the course of him almost being destroyed, uh, others were were caught up in it as well. And right towards the end, when you would think it was settled, it was done, the the show was nearly over, he would still be saying, "Oh, we never got the voice of the mobsters," which is an extraordinary thing to say. And you know, either I, are you saying that we have we have failed completely? That some people argue that the Sopranos went off towards the end; that it did become a little bit. Um, Ratings chasing, audience chasing. I, I don't know if that's if that's true. I didn't find that myself. But um, but he had doubts right right until the end. And and a manifestation of this doubt was that he would look around for somebody to blame for not uh, writing to the standard that he felt was necessary. And then he and he would sack people and and some of his closest associates. He he got rid of them. You know, just months before the uh, the whole thing ended. Um, towards the end he would quite often not be in the room the writer's room to uh to talk about the the scripts he would not even be in the country he would be in the house that he'd bought in the dordogne giving down his um his judgment on on their work uh so um it was sometimes reading about it you feel that it was almost like a kind of shadow tony soprano going on that where you had where you had a, a a weekly hit, uh, a weekly whacking uh, in in uh, in the, the writing room. It was a weekly firing.
0: But the other thing about the money is that we've you know said TV's a writers' medium and so on. But all of these many millions, a lot of it is not going to the writers, and of course they have been on strike. It's under the network model that if a show that someone had written on was broadcast on the telly, they would get some money for it. And with the streaming services, it's much more you're paid whatever up front and then that's all you ever see.
1: Yeah. There was a clear path in the past um, for, I suppose you say, an incentive um, for success for a writer. Uh, It wasn't just that they would write the show, the show would be broadcast, um, they would get paid for it and that was it. If the show was successful, the likelihood was that the show would then be uh, rebroadcast Ie is is known as syndication. Also, if it was sold overseas, as a successful show usually would be, um, in both cases, the original writers would get a share of of the the income from that. Under the new system, particularly this is particularly relevant to streaming, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, it's a one off fee. So you will often see these very very big headline figures. You know, Netflix has signed up. Um, a producer for three hundred million dollars wow, but um that doesn't necessarily go to the writer and, and whatever proportion goes to the writers uh it's a one off and uh and there's nothing more after that it's it's all um front loaded uh, and any subsequent success uh if it uh, causes millions of new subscribers to join a streaming channel for example like netflix um. That will go to Netflix, not to the writer. So yes, that was very much a cause. There's, on the one hand, we we're not getting our, our pay is less um, now than it used to be uh, just for writing the show. But on the other hand, the, the prospects in the future are, are minimal compared to what they were. You know, the, there's not even the chance for for great riches now. But one of the things that um, I read about uh, before I I read. Biskin's book um, that is happening now is that it's quite common now for a group of writers who are working on a show um, to be paid off and just let go completely before the first um, minute of the show is shot. So um, it's like, thanks very much, you've done your work, we'll never see you again, we don't care who you are, goodbye. Um, and they, they sort of feel themselves as having created these characters. And uh, and put an absolutely essential investment into the the show, but at the same time they're kind of cut off from it. They're they're orphaned um, before it even before they even start making it. And if if they need to make changes while it is being shot, which they inevitably will, then some other writer will will have to get involved. Uh, and and this. You know, Clearly, this is going to have a deleterious effect on the show. If you're doing shows that way, if you're treating writers that way, if you're treating anyone that way, if you're treating actors that way, because they're also suffering from this kind of uh, clawback of residuals, then ultimately you will go to the next stage of the entertainment cycle, which is that stuff becomes bland, boring, and people lose interest. And uh, they have to start again with a new wave of, um, of innovative creators.
0: James Meek, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. You can read James's piece in the 4th of January issue of the LRB, along with Andrew O'Hagan on Robert Louis Stevenson and Deborah Friedel on Catherine Mansfield. And there's still time to subscribe to the LRB's Close Readings podcast series. There are three new series this year, Colin Burrow and Claire Bucknell on satire. Adam Schatz talking to Judith Butler, Pankaj Mishra and Brent Hayes Edwards about some of the revolutionary thinkers of the 20th century. And Emily Wilson and I are back with a new season of Among the Ancients. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.